I was listening to the radio this morning and I heard, I love bluegrass. So I just woke up joyful today and it's just been a beautiful day. I love the cold. I love this weather. I love the early morning and my wife does not love that I love those things. Um, so this morning I was coming to pick up my mom and as I was driving, I heard this song on the, on the radio and it was, it was a song, it was bluegrass and the guy was singing, Jesus is my co-pilot but the devil's behind the wheel. And I'm sitting in the back praying we don't crash. That's what I'm hoping about this message today, that I'm not going to crash. And then as I was driving, I saw on the, on the left-hand side, uh, blue light special with a Ford Mustang on the side of the road. And I was thinking he might have been listening to the same song. So let's pray, and then we'll get into this um, topic about All, Sa- All Saints Sunday and All Saints Day. Father in heaven, thank you so much for this beautiful cathedral that you've prepared for us this morning. Uh, We thank you for the sun. We thank you for uh, your word. We thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for the time that we can come together. Pray, Father, that these words would be like seeds planted in fertile soil, that your Holy Spirit would water them, and that uh, your body would grow as a result and be edified. In your name, amen. So I have a few contentions, and one of those contentions is that we live in an age of forgetfulness. Not only forgetfulness, but it's solitary forgetfulness. We are willfully ignorant of the past, and we deny it. We live in a 24-hour news cycle. We have internet, internet updates, incessant reminders from our phones. My wife's phone, whenever it dings, it's like I go have this PTSD moment. And it's always dinging, it seems. Yet, we still forget. My lineage, I'm Norwegian. I'm proud of it. I know my mother and my father, thankfully. I know my grandparents. I know their names. But I don't know the names of my great-grandparents. I don't know their great-grandparents. My memory is short. There are Bedouins in the desert who have none of these things, and they can recite 14 generations back. Their memories are good. We also are prideful. We believe that our historical situation is uniquely terrible. If you don't believe me, listen to the other side the day after an election. We think that we are privileged. We think we are the culmination, the apex of human history. This is hubris. This is not true. We've fallen prey to the temptation of ageist thinking. Screwtape in C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters encourages his student to basically engage in this idea, this temptation for men. He says, Only the learned read old books. And we have now so dealt with the learned that they are all of men the least likely to acquire wisdom by doing so. We have done this by inculcating the historical point of view. The historical point of view is presented, put briefly, means that when a learned man is presented with any statement in an ancient author, the one question he never asks is whether it is true. So, in academia... So often, we reject truth or ignore truth. 
yet we have a higher call. We have a deeper call. In fact, we're called to be people of the book. This is an old book, and we're all called to read it. Scripture, the Bible, it calls us to remember. It calls us to be good stewards of our memories. Not just our individual memories, but our collective memories, our community memories. Deuteronomy speaks to this. I love the Old Testament. I don't want to wallow there, but I do love it. Deuteronomy 4, pardon me, Deuteronomy 6, 4.13 says, bear with me as I rush there. Should have marked it, but I didn't. So listen to what Jesus, what God has to say to his people about memory. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Why? And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build and houses full of all good things that you did not fill and cisterns that you did not dig and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant and when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget. Lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of slavery. He goes on in Deuteronomy 8 and says, again, when he's giving the law to the people, take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply, your silver and gold is multiplied, lest you forget the Lord your God. He goes on and says, and if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so shall you perish. We need to keep our memories. If we do not remember, we die. All Saints Day and All Saints Sunday, it's a day about remembering. First, I want to give you a little background. A little, I was a history major in college, and I think I still wish I was. Um, and so it's fun for me to kind of go back and look at things historically and then kind of give you a context. So I'm going to give you a brief history lesson. So in short, November 1st is All Saints Day. If November 1 does not fall on a Sunday, we celebrate All Saints Sunday as that All Saints Day. And that's what's happened this year. And that's why we're doing it this way. The vestments are white. They signify victory. They signify light. It's a reminder for us to think of the victory that Christ has won. 
So Pope Gregory III first shifted it to November the 1st in the 8th century after the consecration of St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. Prior to that, it had been on May 13th, and that was instituted by Pope Boniface IV in 609 after the dedication of the Pantheon in Rome as a church to the Virgin Mary and the martyrs. The records of All Saints Day go back as far as 270 AD for the church. There's been this instinct from almost the inception of the church to remember, to want to remember. It's an old idea. About what, 1900, 1800 years old? Now, there's another sort of twist. It's a, a Roman twist, and I'll, I'll address it. All Saints Day is November 2nd. And that was instituted in 993 in Cluny, Ireland. All Saints, pardon me, All Souls Day is the third day of a holy tridium, or tridium, and that is called All Hallow Tide. So that includes All Saints Eve, October 31, Vespers, that's really beginning the holiday. And then we have All Saints Day, followed by All Souls Day. So in Catholic circles, all Souls Day was a day set apart to basically pray for those who are in purgatory. Now, according to the articles of the uh, 39 articles of, of faith in the Anglican tradition, which comes out of 1571, definitely a Reformation document, they essentially quite clearly reject what they describe as this Romish habit. I would love to read the language to you, but I'm trying to move along. Um, so we don't buy into this idea of purgatory in the Anglican tradition. What we've done, I think, is not good. What we've done is we say we celebrate what I call the uber saints on All Saints Day. That's like the big guys, you know. And then we have All Souls Day where we remember the littles, the ordinary saints. You and I would probably be in that category. And I'll get back to that at some later point. But we can't talk about this without talking about Halloween, All Hallows' Eve. So All, uh, All Hallows' Eve occurs 1031, October 31. Hallow, so you know, means saint. That's all it means. So when we talk about All Saints' Day, it's All Hallows' Day. It's the same thing, same word. It's an, I think Anglo-Saxon's the origin. So Hallows means saint. There is a Celtic festival that's, uh, that's basically aligned with uh, pagan Ireland and the Celtic fringe that's called Samhain. It basically was in the fall around the same time that we celebrate All Saints Day. And it was a belief that the veil between the other world or the spirit world was particularly thin. Think of it if you're a pagan. It's the, the season when you've brought in your harvest. It's all there. And the fields are now dying and you're preparing for winter. It's either you've got a full larder or you don't. And it's this time of, of transition from the busyness of harvest to essentially the desolation of winter. You could see how you might lend yourself to thinking there's a, a transitional or a, a thinner barrier between the spirit world and the physical world in a, in a pagan mind. So some of the pagans at that point would actually seek communion with the dead. There were these burial mounds that folks would actually enter into to have fellowship with the dead quite physically. There were others who were afraid of the dead 
And so they would actually dress up so you couldn't be identified. And that's where we get this tradition of dressing up on Halloween. It's so that you hid yourself so the spirits wouldn't get you. It was also a season of bonfires. And it was also when we, where we get the jack-o'-lantern from. Except the Irish who uh, promulgated the idea didn't use hollow, uh, pardon me, uh, pumpkins. They used turnips. And when they came to the New World, they switched to pumpkins. So that's to scare away the evil spirits. Because this, this bridge, this chasm was thinner. It also, I think, could have been um, a clever ploy by early Christian missionaries to sort of take this latent already uh, belief and essentially say, we're going to baptize that and we're going to create All Saints Day. Not all agree with that, but I think it makes sense. Um, it depends on who you're reading. Our friends to the south in Mexico, they have Dio de los Muertes. It's a day of the dead. It's primarily in Mexico. And it's a day of memory where they actually, the families, the entire families will go to the grave sites, clean the graveyards. They'll bring flowers. And in their own homes, they'll actually create like little altars to the dead, bringing their favorite foods and putting them inside the house. It's a little pagan. But they do it. And it's a, I think the, the, the instinct is good. That is, they're trying to remember and cultivate family and see this intergenerational thing. If you really want to have, well, it, I would describe it as lighthearted. If you really want to have an exhaustive handling of the subject, I refer you to the 27, uh, 2017 Pixar film, Coco. That's where you'll get scholarly work there. <laughs> so who are the saints? Ephesians 1, 15, that is referred to by Paul, talks about people who are alive. It's the church. We are saints. If we believe that Jesus Christ is Lord, we speak that with our, with our mouths and we believe that with our hearts. We're saints. Revelation speaks to a different set of saints. Those are the saints that who have died, those who have been martyred, those who have simply departed believers. So it raises a question about what is the status of the dead in Christ. I haven't really thought much about that. And I don't know if you have. But one way to think about this is, if we believe in a bodily resurrection, which I do, then when Christ is on the cross, and he's there with one of the thieves, and he says to him, today you will be with me in paradise. He does not say to him, today you will be with me in a soul sleep where you're kind of in this torpor place until the bodily resurrection occurs. He doesn't say that. He says, you will be with me in paradise. So if we want to think of the Christian life as birth into this world, death and resurrection... They're on step two of this path. They have not yet been bodily resurrected, but yet they are present with God in heaven. Another example from Christ is when he talks about the parable of Lazarus, who is this 
poor man who's got, I think, leprosy, if I'm not mistaken, and, and the dogs would lick his wounds. It's this powerful language. And he just dies this pitiful life and death. And then he's taken to Abraham's bosom. Well, what's Abraham's bosom? Well, it's not hell, I'll tell you that. It's a place of comfort. It's a place of, 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 uh, of being with God. And there, he wants to tell his neighbor about, who's in hell and died, about the goodness of God. And basically, Jesus says, I'm not letting you go. I'm not letting you tell him because if, he, if your brothers and sisters don't read the prophets, they're not going to believe you. So the body is in the dirt. The body is maybe form, turned into ash, but the soul, the spirit exists. It continues to exist. I think if you read Orthodox Christianity, read the writers, read the scripture, you'll see that I'm right on this one. But you're free to disagree. So my point is the soul isn't sleeping. So what is the soul doing? What's the spirit doing? Revelation 7 gives us a beautiful example of what the soul is doing. It is worshiping God. Did you read Psalm 149? It is worship. We are free to worship as we've never been free to do that before. Could you imagine if you see Jesus Christ in his fullness, in his completeness, and you have a response to that? I can't help but it's going to be one on your face, like, what? And then the second is going to be, holy, holy, holy. What else will we be doing? Because I don't think that's it. So I'm pulling from C.S. Lewis's Weight of Glory where he basically talks about some things that the saints do. And these are, I think, some of the things that the saints are doing that we can do here, but they're also doing there. That we shall be with Christ, that we shall be like him, with enormous wealth of imagery that we shall have glory, that we shall in some sense be fed or feasted or entertained, and that we shall have some sort of official position in the universe. We're going to have a role, a duty. Again, we're not just sitting there doing nothing, waiting. And we're not on clouds either. And I'm not having wings. Another passage that deals with this issue of the saints is one of my favorites. And this is the one that's really captivated me. So as I've been reading... I, you can't talk about this and not talk about Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12, well, you have Hebrews 11, right? Hebrews 11 is the, the hall of, of saints, right? The hall of fame of saints. It's this great list of people who have done, have withstood, have been faithful, did not succumb. In the face of tragedy, they continued on. And then you have Romans, oh, pardon me, Hebrews 12, 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run, blah, 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 blah. Where I get stuck, where I stop is these words. Therefore, since we are surrounded. What does that mean to you? I have a picture of Fort Apache and the Indians are surrounding Fort Apache. You can't get out. You can't get in. 
I have a vision of the Greek word is parakamai. I'm probably butchering it, but it means basically lay all around. It's like a millstone. What's a millstone? It's a big rock that's circular. It's got a little thing in the middle, a little post in the middle. Think of like this giant rock surrounding you. And that's what the saints are doing right now. We are surrounded by the saints. It says like a great cloud of witnesses. More of the the clouds are over here. But you think about, there is this huge amount of them. And they surround us. That's comforting to me. It's comforting because I realize that I'm not alone. It's not just about me. That there's this continuum this link between the past and the present, and I hope the future. It's a beautiful picture. So what do they do? I think they're more than spectators. They're models. The saints are models. They're exemplars. They give us courage. They're a part of us. They remind us that we're not alone and we can do it. I was thinking about the Plasticos Thuos um, that we had a couple of weeks ago. This was... Um, a part of Church of the Lamb's um, annual celebration. And it involved basically grown men on rather small plastic toys going down a hill. And I asked myself, how am I going to do this, right? I don't have the capacity to steer my vehicle. And then Dan Velker said, I've been down this thing three or four times. And I said to myself, if Dan Velker can go down this thing, I can do it. If the faithful saints can persevere in the face of suffering and tribulation, you can do it too. So, there is a beautiful picture of this fellowship of believers that I have to read to you. So, for those of you, this is the, the sacred text of Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. I have to give you a little bit of context here. So I assume that not all of you are, are Harry Potter fans. To give you, a, a set the stage, Harry is, this is the seventh book. This is the final book. So we have gone through almost seven books of trials and tribulations. And Harry is now walking to his final confrontation with Voldemort and to his death. He knows he's walking to his death. He's carrying with him this thing called the resurrection stone. This was an important element. It was, if you had the resurrection stone, the elder wand, and the invisibility cloak, you basically would become the master of death. A lot of people misunderstood what that meant, but ultimately being the master of death meant being able to accept your mortality, to accept the reality that you would die. So Harry has got this um, resurrection stone that's in a golden snitch. And you'll, a, golden, a snitch is a part of the Kidditch game. For those of you who know more about Harry uh, Potter, tell the others who don't know what that is. Um, but the resurrection stone allows people to call back those who have predeceased. It's a way to to have communion with those who have departed. 
So when I first read this, when I first read the book, I actually bawled like a baby. I mean, real tears, needing a tissue to clean my nose. So I'm going to work really hard to not cry when I read this. And if I do cry, it's not because I'm not a man. It's because this is really powerful for me, okay? So he's moving and walking towards his death. He pressed the golden medal to his lips and whispered, I'm about to die. The metal shell broke open. He lowered his shaking hand, raised Draco's wand beneath the cloak, and murmured, Lumos, life. The black stone with its jagged crack running down the center sat in the two halves of the snitch. The resurrection stone had cracked down the vertical line representing the elder wand. The triangle and circle representing the cloak and the stone was still discernible. And again, Harry understood without having to think, it did not matter about bringing them back, for he was about to join them. He was really not fetching them, they were fetching him. He closed his eyes and turned the stone over in his hand three times. He knew it had happened because he heard slight movements around him that suggested frail bodies shifting their footing on the earthy, twig-strewn ground that marked the outer edge of the forest. He opened his eyes and looked around. They were neither ghost nor truly flesh. He could see that. They resembled most closely the riddle that had escaped from the diary so long ago. He had, been, he had been memory made solid, less substantial than living bodies, but much more than ghosts. They moved toward him, and on each face, there was the same loving smile. James was exactly the same height as Harry, that's his father, he was wearing the clothes in which he had died, and his hair was untidy and ruffled, and his glasses were a little lopsided like Mr. Weasley's. Sirius, his mentor, was tall and handsome and younger by far than Harry had seen him in life. He loped with an easy grace, his hands in his pockets, and a grin on his face. I don't know why this shakes me up. <laughs> Lupin was younger too, and much less shabby, and his hair was thicker and darker. He looked happy to be back in this familiar place, scene of so many adolescent wanderings. Lily, his mother, her smile was widest of all. She pushed her long hair back as she drew close to him, and her green eyes, so like his, searched his face hungrily. Could you imagine a mother getting to see her son? She, though she would never be able to look at him enough. You've been so brave. He could not speak. His eyes feasted on her, and he thought that he would like to stand and look at her forever, and that would be enough. You are nearly there, said James, very close. We are so proud of you. Isn't that what we all want to hear? The childish question had fallen from Harry's lips before he could stop it. Dying? Oh, pardon me. He says... you. He says, does it hurt? That's Harry. The childish question had fallen from Harry's lips before he could stop it. Dying? Not at all, Sirius said. Quicker and easier than falling asleep. And he will want it to be quick. That is Voldemort. He wants it over, said Lupin. I didn't want you to die, Harry said. These words came without his volition. And any of you, I I'm sorry. He addressed Lupin more than any of them, beseeching him. 
right after you had your son, Remus. I'm sorry. I'm sorry too, said, said Lupin. Sorry I will never know him. But he will know why I died, and I hope he will understand. I was trying to make a world in which he could live a happier life. A chilly breeze that seemed to emanate from the heart of the forest lifted the hair at Harry's brow. He knew that they would not tell him to go, that it have to be his decision. You'll stay with me until the very end, said James. We are part of you, said Sirius, invisible to anyone else. Harry looked at his mother. Stay close to me, he said quietly. And he set off. That's how I view the saints. They are around us. They surround us. They uplift us. We are part of them and they are, and we are, part, and they are part of us. We are part of them. They are part of us. I think this is a healthy view to have. That we are not alone. That we are on a continuum. And that this is not our lives. It's not our lives alone. I used to believe that we come into this life alone and that we leave it alone. I used to even say that. It's not true. We come into this world in relationship. We were born by a woman. And if we live this life well, we go out of this world surrounded by the saints, alive and dead. Why do we talk so much about this? Why is this important? We're human and we need to live in a connected and contextualized life. We need to know from where we come and where we're going. We celebrate the lives of the saints out of respect, out of love, out of humility, out of thanksgiving, a right understanding of history, collective and individual. We celebrate the dead to remember that we are not alone and we stand on the shoulders of the past and remember that we can persevere in the, in the faith, in the race that we have not yet completed. I would leave you with one last thought, and this is what I said I was going to speak to, and that's this issue of the Anglican Church setting up uber saints and ordinary saints. I take issue with this. I do not think that there are any ordinary saints. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you say it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long we are, in some degree, helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another. All friendships, all loves, all play, all politics, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. 
but it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. If he is your Christian neighbor, he is holy in almost the same way, for in him also Christ, the glorifier and the glorified, glory himself is truly hidden. Let us pray. O thou who wast and art and art to come, I thank thee that the Christian way whereon I walk is no untried or uncharted road, but a road beaten hard by the footsteps of saints, apostles, prophets, and martyrs. I thank thee for the finger posts and danger signals with which it is marked at every turning and which may be known to me through the study of the Bible and of all history and of all the great literature of the world. Beyond all, I give thee devout and humble thanks for the great gift of Jesus Christ, the pioneer of our faith. I praise thee that thou hast caused me to be born in an age and in a land which have known his name, and that I am not called upon to face any temptation or trial which he did not first endure. Amen.